In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Well, I thought briefly about preaching with the wig on, but I don't want to set a precedent here, so I won't. But it's been said that in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is always going to a meal or returning from a meal. Jesus is always eating one way or another in the Gospel. And so the act of eating with others becomes a really important theme in the Gospel. Well, and this should not be surprising to us. So in the Bible, eating with someone or feasting with others is a picture throughout the Bible of the kingdom of heaven. So our reading from Joshua this morning touches on the great food that the Israelites will have once they settle in the promised land. Right? Once they get to Israel, the Israelites are going to feast. They're no, they will no longer need the manna in the wilderness because God's going to give them a new kind of abundance in the promised land. In the book of Isaiah, heaven is described like this. On the mountain of the Lord of hosts, he will make for all peoples a, rich, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, well-aged wines drained clear. In the book of Revelation, describes Christ's second coming as a marriage supper, as a great big celebratory feast. And so in the Gospels, when Christ eats with people, it's not arbitrary, it's not random. Rather, he's making a point that the kingdom feast has, become, has begun. And it's begun because Christ has come to reconcile God and sinner. And so we've heard in the last few weeks Gospel lessons that much of Jesus' teaching is spurred by criticism from the Pharisees. Well, this week is no different. Chapter 15 of Luke begins with the Pharisees, Pharisees criticizing Jesus. They say, this fellow welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Well, the Pharisees are not naive. They're not dumb. They understand that Jesus is making a statement when he chooses to eat with sinners. They understand that he is saying to the world that sinners are invited to the great feast of heaven. You have some time maybe... In high school or college, you've studied a little bit of William Shakespeare's plays. Well, Shakespeare's plays are usually put into three categories, histories, tragedies, and comedies. Histories focus on historical characters like kings. Tragedies are, tragedies are those plays in which just about everyone dies at the end. And then there are comedies, uh, titles like The Taming of the Shrew or Much Ado About Nothing, A Midsummer's Night Dream, and so on. Well, Shakespeare's comedies always end in weddings and in feasts. And so in a sense, the biblical picture is that God is planning for history to end as a comedy. The resolution is supposed to be one of joy, of feasting, and of celebration. And so the true theme of the parable of the prodigal son is really about this. The true theme of the parable asks a direct question of both the Pharisees and of us, which is, are we going to join the feast? And if not, like the Pharisees, what's going to get in the way of us joining that feast? The whole parable then puts its focus on the elder brother. He's the one who becomes the picture of the one who stands outside the feast. The parable is really about this older brother. We most often think about lostness and about sinful living as that which is clearly visible and obvious. 
Right? We see someone who has loose morals, who has a drinking problem, who gambles, who's engaged in some kind of sexual immorality and so on. We see that that person's far away from the church. And that's the picture of lostness that we usually have. It's easy to identify. It's easy to point out. And so, of course, the prodigal son himself experienced this kind of lostness. And so there is an aspect of this parable which points out that we can refuse to join the Father's party because we're busy attempting to create heaven for ourselves on earth through sensual pleasure and distraction. And we all know people like this, and we can point out people like this. However, as Jesus tells the parable, he's addressing the Pharisees. And it's not that kind of sinfulness that he's addressing. That's not the problem he's pointing out. We know this because, well, the Pharisees are religious. They're moral. They take their religious duties very seriously. And they, in a lot of ways, that describes most of us here present. In some ways, we are like the Pharisees, right? We are religious. We're here in church on Sunday. We take our faith seriously. And few of us are caught up in the kind of loose living that the prodigal was caught up in. Many of us, if not all of us, are probably more often guilty of the kind of sin that ensnared the older brother. This kind of sin might even be more, a, a more difficult kind of lostness to identify because it's not a sin that's obvious. When we look at the older brother, what do we see? We see that he's obedient. He lives out his duty. He has his act together. He's responsible. Looking from the outside in, nothing would look amiss with the older brother. But the older brother refuses to, jo to join the feast. He refuses to become part of God's kingdom. And so as we read the parable, I think we really see two sinful characteristics that keep the older brother from joining the party. First, we see that the older brother is joyless, that he holds resentment in his heart. Right? When the father steps out to plead with the older brother to join the party, notice what his response is. For all of these years, I have been working like a slave for you. I have never disobeyed your commands, yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Right? We hear the resentment and the bitterness, the joylessness in the older son's heart. How does he characterize his duty to his father? He says, well, father, I worked like a slave for you. And we see the irony, of course, that the younger son comes back looking just to be treated like a slave, but he finds his reception as a son. The younger son has learned what it is to live like a slave. He has learned what it is to live apart from his father's generosity. The older son, however, has not. He sees only duty. He sees only the duty he has paid to his father as drudgery. His obedience he sees as a burden. His service, he sees as slavery. And I wonder if such bitterness ever takes hold in our hearts. Can our obedience to God's word become a burden to us? Do we ever begin to resent what our church, our community, our family, or our Lord ask of us? And that's not to say that we shouldn't have boundaries about our time and resources 
and that we should use them wisely in God's kingdom. But do we ever lose joy in our service to the Lord? And in losing that joy, can we place ourselves outside the feast? Do we say, I don't really want to feast with those people anyway? Those people only take. Those people never contribute as much as I do. Those people haven't committed the years and years to the cause like I have. We have to check our hearts in this way. We have to check for bitterness. We have to check for joylessness. And instead, we always have to reconsider the very simple joys of the kingdom of God. We must always return to our first identities as the Father's children and to know that he has cared for us the whole time in order to return to our joy and not be tempted to get caught up in bitterness and cynicism. The second characteristic that we see arise in the heart of the older brother is that he feels entitled. Right? The younger brother commits a grave sin at the beginning of this parable. He says to the father, give me my inheritance. When the ancient Middle East culture in which the story is told, he's really saying to his father, go father, drop dead. Right? He's saying to his father, I would rather have your money than to have to live here with you any longer. That's disrespectful even in our culture, in which our parents and elders are not held to the same esteem as they were in that culture. Now, in this ancient culture, such disrespect of a father would have been worthy of being stoned to death. It was no light sin. But the elder son commits the same kind of sin through his sense of entitlement. He says to his father, Father, I deserve such and such. I deserved a special celebration. I deserved a fatted calf. You never paid attention to me. You never cared for me. He's saying to the father, you're a bad father. He's saying that the father has wronged him, that he deserves so much more, that the father never treated him right. The elder son fails to recognize, of course, because of his entitlement, because of his bitterness, that everything in the household is his. There's nothing the father would have withheld from him if only he had asked, if only he had received it. Instead, the elder son sees the generosity toward the younger son and begins to believe in his heart that he is entitled to even more than he has. He believes that he is entitled because he's lived out his obligation, he has done his duty, he deserves this. In the same way, when we begin to approach our relationship with God in terms of deserving and entitlement, we will quickly find ourselves distant from God. And we think like this sometimes. We think, God, I am entitled to go to heaven because I went to church my whole life. I'm entitled to good health, good finances, a perfect marriage, and so on, because I've always committed to my religious service. And this entitlement fails to receive gifts from God because it believes God reacts transactionally to our faith. But this is not how God wants us to relate to him. We're not in a business relationship with God. Instead, God wants us to live with him as his children, to know that in fact he is giving us all that we need. He wants us to pray and to ask him for what we need and to share our hearts with him and not to be entitled and ungrateful but to receive every good gift from him. The basic heart attitudes, joylessness, entitlement, they can keep us standing outside the feast. 
They can leave us sullen and sulking in the corner, ever grumbling and complaining, and missing that all God wants to do for us. But you'll notice something about the parable of the prodigal son. It does not have a conclusion. Right? We don't know what happens to the older son. It's left hanging. Does he take his father's outstretched hand and walk with him into the feast? Does he walk with his father back to the kingdom of God? Or does he turn away and does he leave home in his own way? Does he choose to live bitter and lost, cut off from the feast his father is hosting? Or does he choose to celebrate in the generosity of his father? Well, the parable is open-ended. And it's open-ended for you to make that same choice. Daily, you have this choice. Will you spend the day reaching out for your father's hand as he walks joyfully with you to the celebration of the kingdom of God? Or will you withdraw? Will you turn away from the feast that God is hosting now? No, we don't know how the older brother responds in the parable. But we do know this. We know the heart of the father. We know that the father will ever be waiting to bring all of his sons together in one great celebration. And we know now that the father in heaven waits for you. He will always wait for you. And he will always leave a place at the table for you. Amen.